Palace's last palace for just Ronaldo! on his right, hangs it up for Ronaldo, oh, nice settles, shoots, scores! Cristiano again! And he vaporizes the defenders! Ya acaba la derecha para Xavi. Asistencia de Xavi, mezca para esta, para Messi, 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 Immense Messi, Ankara 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 Protegeu, fez o drible, que lance do Neymar, que golaço! Gol! Guerreiro, here's Giroud, a deflection and Mbappé gives France the lead. The youngest ever goal scorer at a World Cup. For France, 19-year-old Kylian Mbappé. He just shook one, shook one. Welcome to the fifth episode of Stoppage Time. Uh, this week, our guest is the head coach of Beverly High School, head of Beverly Youth Soccer. I met this guy when I was uh, coaching. I, he was coaching, excuse me, at my old high school, St. John's Prep. Um, at the time, you know, I was a, the high school team manager he was an assistant coach and got along great with this dude from the moment I met him. So happy to have his unique perspective on the game today from a coach's perspective. Uh, something we really haven't talked about as much on this show. Edgar DeLeon, welcome to the show, man. Thanks, Matt. I really appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk soccer with you and in life as well. You're no, of course. Person. And honestly, that's one one of the things that I always talk about on this show is, you know, as someone who hasn't hasn't played too competitively in my life and someone who like you probably wouldn't expect to love the game of soccer. When I met you, we instantly clicked both because of our passion for the game. Um, and I really admired your knowledge of the game too. Uh, one thing I really just that stuck with me is that when you were coaching, the players just had so much respect for you. And number one is because you're really good. Uh, that was one piece that I caught on to pretty quickly, but number two, just like the way you communicated with the players. Um, I just, I really loved seeing that and I wanted to try and learn everything I could uh, from you and just like you talked about too like you're just a great guy so it was always easy to just shoot, shoot the shit with you anyways so thank you for coming thank on man. the episode and i'm really excited to talk about what we have uh, on the agenda today thank you man no i really appreciate it i think uh you know uh one of the things i appreciate about people who've never played like yourself but you have this passion for the game and you just you know you absorb you're like a sponge of knowledge and you just absorb information and you know you love seeing the game from a different perspective that you know obviously I've never seen because I did play and and through my playing I got into coaching so you know it's a it's a different angle but um you know I I always appreciate all the knowledge that you bring to the table because you're you're an educated guy when it comes to the sport and, and it's great to always talk <laughs> real soccer with people who actually know what they're talking about no thank you man I credit to being it around being around a lot of people who taught me a lot and I'm still obviously learning a lot so 
I'd love to hear from you, you know, what, where did your passion for soccer begin? I know probably at a very early stage of your life, but if you could go deep for us and talk all the way back to when you first began to kick a soccer ball. I mean, you can go back to when I was five, six years old, when I was born and raised in Guatemala. And in Guatemala, you only get to play a couple of sports. You either play soccer or you play baseball. I mean, those are the two main sports that you get to play there. And so I played both, but I started also playing soccer. And when I tell you I started playing soccer, it was like on the streets, um, you know, with my buddies and, and pick up games out in the, on the on the cement, you know, with a plastic ball that if if it popped, the game was over, you know, and um, did I, I grew up through that and then eventually got into playing for the school team and other teams. Um, and then when I came, when I moved to the United States was, you know, when I started to pick it up a little more, but uh, yeah, my, my beginnings in, in soccer go way back into like the early eighties playing in the streets. <laughs> that was probably the most memorable time. We, I, my last guest had a very similar story and these are my favorite stories, right? Just he talked about how the person with the soccer ball in the neighborhood was the person you wanted to be friends with and you wanted to hang out with just because there would be an opportunity to go play a game. You know, do you kind of have a similar experience in your community and did your community really gravitate towards like using soccer as a way to get together? Or can you kind of explain what that was like growing up? Yeah. You know, it's uh it's a, it's a big thing. Um, where I grew up, there was a lot of poverty. So, you know, you couldn't afford baseball gloves or baseball bats. Um, all you needed was, you know, two rocks to make a goal and, uh, and a little plastic ball. Or, you know, sometimes we made a ball a lot of socks. And uh, and we played one-on-ones all day. That's that's all we did, you know. even And the dirt and the rocks and the grass and the cement, wherever it was. And, uh, you know, soccer is a big part of Latin America. Soccer is a huge part of you know, Spanish speaking cultures. And um, so you grew up in that culture and and you want and you learn to, you know, emulate the people that you hear about on the radio or on TV. Because when I was growing up, that's all we had. We had radio and TV. There was no internet. There was no, you know, very little newspaper coverage or whatever. So, you know, it, it did bring people together and, and it was just, it, it was so much fun. It, it just healthy exercise that we would just, we would be outside playing for three or four hours every afternoon after school till the, till it got dark. And, um and we all enjoyed it. I mean, it was, it was probably some of the best times playing for me in my life. That's awesome. And my next question actually was going to be about, I'm sure it was, there was relatively like limited exposure, but what what was the earliest exposure you had to great professional players that you got to see and you were like, what the hell? Like, what the hell is that? Like, how, how's this guy so good? Someone so, who, well, I was six years old. Six right? years old. I was six years old when uh, the 1982 World Cup happened. I, I vaguely remember the 78 Cup, but I remember it more from the things that I've seen. Uh, so the 86 World Cup, uh, sorry, the 82 World Cup, my bad. The 82 World Cup was my first exposure to like big soccer. And, you know, you, you get it on TV, you get it secondhand and you only got limited games because back in the day, they only showed you on TV certain games. So you got to see like the Italy's against the Brazil's or the Germany's against France or the Argentina's against Holland. Um, so, you know, starting it to see it from that point of view, uh, you know, the world like the World Cup in 82 was was huge. Um you know, you, you got you got some huge players' names, uh, and you got dudes like Marco van Basten, who was playing at that time. Uh, Beckenbauer was in his trail end of his career there. Uh, Gerd Mueller was right in the peak of his career. So you got a lot of European influences. 
Um, for us in Central America, because uh, Central America and North American soccer, other than Mexico, wasn't wasn't really a big international. We always had to follow a South American team, so we got a lot of exposure to teams, uh, you know, in the in the early '80s uh, for Brazil and Argentina, Uruguay, yeah. Paraguay, Colombia. You know, those are the those are the teams that we followed. Uh, but for me, you know, it was always Maradona. I mean, everybody loved Maradona. Uh, some people where I come from love Brazil and they loved Socrates and Zico and those kinds of players. For me, it was Maradona. It was, um, you know, Neri Pumpido, uh, Parcela, those guys. I mean, those are the guys that I followed. So I've ever since 82 or even 78, if you want to go that deep, I've always been a huge fan of Argentina and Argentina soccer. So, and I follow them and I cry and I smile every World Cup. <laughs> I can tell you that. It's just because of your, like your love for Diego Maradona. What was it? Or was it just the Central American, like the tie into that kind was, of those kind of players? Well, it was always, there was always the tie in that you always wanted to root for the Latin American teams. You know, you always, in Latin America, you never root for a European Latin team and international. You know, that's like saying uh, the people in Italy would be rooting for, you know, Brazil. That's unheard of. You right. would never hear something like that. But uh, so, yeah, for me, you know, it was the exposure to all these uh, South Americans. But I mean, Maradona was the biggest name in soccer uh, throughout the whole 80s you know, and into uh, almost into the middle of the 90s. And and he was the name that everybody emulated, you know, like when you play out in the streets and you say, I'm Maradona, you know, I would be one of those kids. I'd be yelling, I'm Maradona. No, I'm Pele, you know, or one of these other players. And that's pretty much how we grew up with, you know, emulating those those players. And those were my idols, you know, guys like Falcao, Zico, Socrates, um, you know, Carlos Alberto. A lot of Brazilian dudes were phenomenal. But right. Maradona was just to me was always the greatest. Maradona, obviously one of the most talented players of all time, one of the greatest players of all time. But you talked about the World Cup and the 1982 Brazil team. That's the yeah. team that Italy actually beat in that crazy three-two game where Paolo yes. Rossi had the hat trick. And a lot of people actually say that that 1982 Brazil team was maybe the best national team of all time, and they were knocked out by Italy in the quarterfinals, which is crazy. I do remember that, and I don't know if I, if I can't remember correctly, but uh, when they went, didn't they go to PKs in that game? And I believe uh, there was a there was a shot where somebody took the penalty shot and it bounced off the Brazilian goalie's head and it went in. I'm not sure. I can't remember if it was the 80s. I'm not sure if it was that game because I know in that game Brazil had scored two goals, but Paulo Rossi just like kept answering every yeah. time Brazil would score, and then finally he got he got yeah, the right. to win it. Um, yeah. But either way, I just you mentioned some of those great Brazilian players like Zico, um, and I thought about like in Socrates, like those were two of the main players on that team, one of the best teams of all time. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of the players that you mentioned, like in, when you talked about growing up, you know, you wanted to emulate them playing with um, in the neighborhood. Like one of the questions I have for you is: a lot of people play, but what got you so passionate about coaching? And when did you start to realize, like? I want to be a coach. Well, uh, that's a really good question. So um, I have a passion for working with people, you know, and I started out my post undergrad career working at some corporate job where it was really stale. And But I still stayed coaching throughout the years. Uh, but the thing that got me so passionate about it was that when I was a kid growing up, there weren't that many good soccer coaches. You know, you had a few scattered 
um, club coaches and you could go to a regional team or you can go to national team um, if you had that opportunities, but you wouldn't get good coaching until you got to those high levels. And so, you know, even playing in high school, you you had a lot of success if you were a talented, self-driven player, but you learned on your own. So it really got me passionate because I wanted to learn how to teach the game of soccer to anybody who wanted to learn, you know, and little by little, you know, I educated myself more and more about coaching techniques of, of, uh, of how to be a coach, how to be a leader, how to be a mentor, Um and just I continued to play throughout the years until, you know, until this day, I still play somewhat and I still learn new things every day. And I want to translate those things into, you know, the, the next generation because um, I want to give them what I didn't have. And I think that's, you know, primordial. That's what most generations want to do. We want to give the next generations up an opportunity to learn as much as they can to make the game better. You know, I mean, once they put their own uh, spice into it, it just makes that much, the game that much better. But if I can give them all the knowledge that I have, um, you know, it just it's it's very, very satisfying to see good soccer being played. And especially when you have a hand in it, um, it's it's gratifying. How much in your mind of coaching is great leadership and communication? Oof, that, that's easily 70% of coaching, uh, your, your can leadership. You explain, can you explain why to people? Yeah. So, you know, um, you can have all the knowledge in the world about the game. If you don't know how to communicate that information, you're going to fail. Um, and as a leader, you, you have to have a plan in mind for the goals that you're trying to achieve and you're trying to help other people achieve. Right. So when I look at the job of a head coach and, you know, and I, and how do I see it? I see it as a great responsibility that um, people have placed their trust in you for you to lead them and to show them the way and to work with them, not have them work for you, but you work for them to help them learn. And it is the, the leadership part of it. If you have no leadership, uh, no one's going to follow you uh, and, and in sports. You know, you got to have a, a head person who's driving the the machine, who's driving the car, who's driving the boat. And then everybody else plays a role, but they also at some point eventually learn how to become captains themselves. And I think that's the biggest thing that leadership definitely brings to the table is that you help the people around you become better to the point where, hey, they're at the same level as you. And, um, you know, I, I think that's probably the biggest thing about that in communication, like I was saying earlier, um, you have to be, you have to be knowledgeable about what you're talking about to communicate it. And you have to find ways to communicate that information in the way that it clicks in people's heads. So you can't just try and say it the only way that you know it, or the only way that you learn it, but you have to yeah. learn how other people can learn to play the game, uh, and apply the things that you're teaching them to whatever they want to do with the game. So I, I think, you know, I usually think the communication and leadership are 70% of, of any successful type of uh, soccer head coach position. And, and so what else do you look for? Like you've put together now coaching staffs, you've been a part of coaching staffs. Like what do you look for when you're putting together your staff? And, and we know like you're coaching young high school players. So mm -hmm. that, that mentorship, that communication is just, so important obviously but i feel like it still applies 
at almost any level, right? Like what you look for in a coach in your mind, what are you looking for beside those qualities that we just talked about yeah. when you're filling your coaching staff? I mean, the first thing that I look for is honestly, how serious are they about being a coach? I mean, you have to be serious about it. You either all in or you're not. Um, I don't like working with people who, you know, are kind of, it's a hobby for them. Um, I, I, it, and we're talking about a serious level here. I like to work with people who have played the game before. Uh, for the simple reason is that um, players will respond to you uh, if they know that you've been in the shoes that they've been in. You know, um, you also have to make sure that um, you know what level they've played at. Because if you only played youth soccer, you know, till you were 12 years old and then you've never played the game, but you want to coach now. You, you might not have the the skills or the transition of knowledge that you have to go from one age to the next of development to be able to teach these kids, right? Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, do they have any experience in teaching or education? That's huge because you're a teacher. When you're a coach, you're a teacher. And um, you can have all the knowledge in the world. Again, if you don't know how to communicate it, if you don't know how to teach it, you're going to struggle with it. Um, good ethical people, people who are there for the right reasons, not, um, you know, not people who have their own agendas and are selfish, obviously, but, um, you know, passionate about the game. And eventually I also like to work with guys who want to be health coaches themselves at some point, you know, guys who are Going to learn or, or guys or women i you know both the same just coaches who want to become head coaches of their own programs at some point and i think that drives and that tells me that hey this person wants to get better this person wants to learn and uh, so those are the so those are probably some of the key things that i'm looking for that's awesome and i think a lot of that aspect the final thing you just said there is also your mentorship and like your constant desire to help add value to people's lives too i so see that in yourself and that's probably why you've been such a great coach one of the things I wanted to talk about outside of just these, which I, I love that we talked about the non-tactic related um, aspects of being a coach, right? Because they're non-tactical, excuse me, because so much is made of tactics today, right? You see mm -hmm. so many coaches out there, particularly in the, in the uh, professional game um, coming up with their own unique tactics. And obviously Pep Guardiola with the way he's made his own version of that, like play with the ball at your feet, tiki-taka, he's done it at, Bayern Munich in a little bit of a different way. And he's certainly doing it in Manchester city, creating his own possession based system um, in a really unique way too. you know, tactics. I think a lot of time get overblown in soccer. What are your thoughts on the importance of tactics? Is it more important to create a system for your team or is it better to kind of train your team to be mold like adaptable and be either like good with the ball at their feet and really equally comfortable defending and counterattacking. So, I mean, to, to answer your first question, um, you know, how important are tactics when you're, when you're talking about the professional level, um, I, I think tactics is probably um, a huge chunk of what a team needs to succeed because when you get to the professional level, everybody's technically sound, everybody's physically fit, everybody's got all these other physical attributes. You know, mentally, most players are tough at that point. They know what they're in it for. They're in a profession. So um, you can have all that. But if you don't have tactics, um, you're kind of lost on the field. Uh, if you don't have a system of play, if you don't have patterns of play, you are not going to 
be able to work together as a unit uh, to all meet their same goal. You won't know where your players are going to be. So it's going to be like a big game of pickup where, you know, you could think that someone's going to be in a position to receive a ball or in a defensive shape to help and support, uh, but they're not because they don't, they don't have that. So I, I think tactics, it's what, what makes it, you know, what makes the difference between the successes that some of these teams have. And like you said, People like Pep, you know, I mean, Mourinho, who, you know, is is huge tactician. Um, the, the guy just knows how to how to read his teams and make them adaptable. So along with tactics, to answer your second question, um, you know, it is important to have a system of play. So everybody's on the same page. Um, but, you know, there's times when you have to adjust and you have to just play to win and, and you have to put your players and use your players attributes to the best of their ability to get the W. I mean, that's ultimately, that's the biggest thing. And and, I, and I've gone through that quite a bit over the years. I mean, when I've coached at, uh, at Beverly or whether I've coached in club, you know, I have to look at how, how do I want this group of players with this certain set of skills and talents to play? You know, uh, what is the, what is, what is the system or what is the style of play that's going to get the best out of them? You know, if you don't have a very technical team, it's very difficult to have a possession game like the Barcelona's or city or Bayern, you know, um, if you have more of a physical team, uh, where you have a lot of speed and you have a lot of guys who are attacking a lot. Maybe, you know, maybe you're playing like Chelsea. Maybe you're playing like, um, what's the other team? Even, even uh, Real Madrid plays a lot like Real Madrid. Madrid. Yeah, I mean. They, like just because they, some games in La Liga, they dominate with the ball, doesn't mean that they're not really comfortable defending and then counterattacking against like really, really good teams too. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I think I think you need to find, find a balance of both. You have to have a system of play. Uh, but you also have to train your players to be able to respond to any type of game situation because not all tactics are going to work for every game situation. And, and the game is so this you you have to be such an adaptable person in the game because it changes from one phase of the game to the next. You know, even in one half of soccer, you're you're, you're looking at three to four different phases of the game that are happening that you have to adjust to what you're doing and having the tactics in place prepares the players to be able to work as a unit to hopefully succeed and win. How do you prepare your teams for situations that they're not necessarily comfortable with? Like, let's say like in this hypothetical situation, say you do have a team that's really technically like very good. Everyone's good with the ball, ball at their feet. Like, and then you play a team that's even a little bit better than you. And you realize that the best way to win this game is to kind of like, defend a little bit more, let them have, like, maybe let them have the possession, defend, and then you have to counterattack. You know, just um, throwing out a random scenario in there. It's a situation that the team's not usually used to winning, but you you know you have to try and play like this to win. What do you, well, how do you prepare for that? The, the, the easiest thing is, number one, you you have to make sure that you get buy-in from the players to understand that you know when you need to make the changes during a game this is why so you have to communicate that you have to explain that and then you just do it in training you you do it in training where you put them in those situations where hey you know what uh this group today is playing against this group this is your scenario and we call these scenario plays and uh this is the style that i need you to play and this is the style that i need you to play and they go at each other and you make the adjustments as you as you go through your training sessions 
when you have the opportunity during a game where you know you're going to see that kind of scenario, you put it into play, you know, and then the next game after that, it becomes part of the repertoire where, hey, you know what, if we're ever in a situation during a game, now we know how to respond to it. But I think training is the, the biggest thing where you can do that. And I think that separates a lot of good teams from the bad teams, if you want to call them that, is that, you know, some coaches just focus on the skills, right? So only on dribbling and passing and, and certain types of patterns of play yeah. or shooting and these kinds of things. But they don't really focus a lot on that tactical aspect of, hey, we need to make an adjustment here during a game because of a game situation. Let's be prepared for that. And they don't spend the, the, a considerable amount doing it. And when they face that, you know, their teams are lost because they don't have a backup plan. It's not a plan B or a plan C that you can go to that you've prepared you guys in training. And and I spend probably most of my preseasons talking to players about systems of play and patterns of play and in scenarios. Uh, and then as we go through the season, we we will see this. And when we see those, my guys are able to practice it in game light in game situations. And we also do it throughout the season in, in game-like situations. So I think that's pretty important to do. No, it's it seems like it. And it definitely seems like it at the professional level, too. Um, you see a lot of these teams. Like I mentioned, Real Madrid. Obviously, they won the Champions League this year. It feels like we say that almost every year, right? And, like, mm-hmm. they're, not the, they're not playing that possession-based style that you kind of see a lot of these teams trying to implement right now. Um, it's really interesting to me. And uh, Carlo Ancelotti's their coach maybe the greatest coach of all time. Curious from you, like your perspective overall, who are the best coaches right now? Who are the coaches that you're looking at and you're admiring in football today? Oof, I I, I had to write them down because there's quite a few. But uh, to me, obviously, uh, uh, Pep is one of the best coaches in the world, if not probably the best coach that we have right now. Of all time, I'm not sure. But right now, I think Pep is, is probably the best. I'm a huge fan of Arteta. Arteta uh, over at Arsenal. I mean, he to me he's like a he's like a mini Pep. He's like a junior Pep, just the same same grind, you know. Um, and his drive for perfection uh, in everything that these players do, the eye for detail, you know, they may not get it perfect every time, but they're he he focuses so much on details, details, details that those guys, you know, when they make a mistake, it's something that. Nobody probably ever thought of, and Arteta is probably one of those. Uh, Club Club is doing a great job with uh, with Liverpool. Uh, Tuchel, I like Zidane. I like the the things that Zidane has done, and I yeah. think Zidane's time as a manager is going to be coming up pretty soon. As a you know, in bigger roles than what we've seen him before. Um, and I think one of the underdog coaches that you know is catching a little bit of heat right now because of his team's performance is Xavi. But I think Xavi, having been yeah. the player that he was. Um, he sees the game in a level that not a lot of players see, you know, uh, especially yeah. through the middle of the field where he saw 360, he saw 360 of the field. So when he takes that and he implements it into his coaching, um, is he a little, you know, is he a little bit of a novice maybe on how he translates his tactics and everything else? Maybe, but that will come with time. And I think, I think probably in the next, you know, five to 10 years, Xavi, and Arteta are probably going to be the names like we talk about, like we uh, like we talk about Cope and uh, and Tuchel and Pep Guardiola these days. You know, I think oh, probably. Right. 
a coach. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. You, you, no, I was just going to say, but for me, those, those are probably the biggest names that I can think of. And, you know, I don't, I don't put a lot of stock into national team coaches. For I the simple, that. Yeah. You know, it's way different. It's, it's, it's way different. I, you have way longer to prepare your teams are together more often too. So yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just a different, it's a different level of the sport too. Like, yeah, you're not, you're not seeing your players every day. You're yeah. not training with them every day. You only see them every so often. Uh, a lot of the times you have to deal with, it's a lot more personnel management because, you know, you, you get all these stars coming from all different places. So um, when I'm, when I'm talking about coaches, you know, there might be one or two who have done some phenomenal things with national teams, but at the end of the day, I think the guys that are in the grind every day who are shaping the way that the sport is being played are the guys who are in clubs who are just consistently. Okay. Doing it. And you, you mentioned Javi and, you know, maybe he needs to improve a little bit as far as like communicating his tactics and communicating his vision for the team. How does a coach get better at that? Because I feel like that's obviously, and we talked about it at the beginning of this segment, that's like one of the pillars you look for in a coach. Like, how does a coach get better at that while still having to manage a team like Barcelona and deal with all the other external uh, factors that come with that? So there's a few things. Number one, you have to know that you don't know everything and you have to do a lot of self-reflection, even after every training session, after every match. Uh, after every off season, you have to look at the things that you're doing and you have to be really a hard critic on yourself to say, what can I do to improve? All right. Uh, number two, you got to have a good supporting staff with you, a, a staff that can see the things that you don't see, uh, can find ways to communicate or connect with players the way that you might not be able to and watch what they do and how they do it and learn from them. Like I've learned from my assistant coaches so many things that, you know, I don't see every day in training or I don't see even during the games. But when we talk about it after games and we reflect back on what we're doing, we, you know, we sit there and share all this information and I take in a lot of what they do or what they see and I try to apply it and I start to apply it to my uh, practices of coaching because I don't see it all. And I think that's, I think that's probably one of the things that Xavi is going to have to do is he's going to have to find a, a staff, a supporting staff that's going to complement his style. Um, I'm not sure if he has that at Barcelona. I think they, they brought him, you know, they brought him in and they said, well, you know, we want you to be the person who spreads what you do and what you know into the everybody else. Um, Plus, he's kind of a figurehead over there too. I mean, right. he's a legend. Yeah, so. the guy's a legend. So they're they're gonna expect him to do whatever he does in in whatever capacity. So, um, you know, a lot of a lot of reflection is huge. Um, look at what you're doing. Uh, connect with your players more often. You know, talk to them in a more personal level. I, I know a lot of these young guys who are maybe in their early twenties are looking at him, who's in his you know, in his late thirties, in his early forties. And um, they look at him as a god, so they might be afraid to talk to him. So he's got to break down those barriers and and just say, hey, you know, I'm just another guy who used to play. Let's talk what makes what works for you. What can we do to maximize, you know, use your team psychologist. That's huge these days. I mean, they, a lot of these young kids need uh, a lot of psychological training. And that goes for coaches as well. You know, coaches have to learn how to connect with the with the generations over time. So. Um, I think those were probably the two biggest things that 
He, is that why Klopp's such a great manager? I mean, I'm sure from a tactical perspective, he gets things right a lot, right? But I feel like when the players talk about Klopp, like they're talking about it like their uncle that they love or like some sort of relative. Like they just <laughs> would, would die for him, right? And I feel like from a communication perspective, it makes it so easy for him. And that's why you see up until – this year, to be honest, that's why you see Liverpool is usually so well organized. Everybody has a role. Everybody's executing in their role so well. Like, I feel like he's one of the best managers in the world. If not, and this might be a hot take, to be honest, but I kind of see him a little bit over Pep Guardiola, given what he's accomplished. Um, my my reason, my reason for saying this is if you look at where Pep's been, he was at Barcelona with Messi, Xavi, Iniesta, et cetera, mm-hmm. right? That's one of the greatest yeah. teams of all time, goes without saying. He went, he won two Champions Leagues there, had, a, a, I think, three league titles, goes to Bayern Munich, only gets to the Champions League semifinals a few times, never mm-hmm. won the Champions League, won a bunch of Bundesliga titles, but those teams were loaded, if you can remember. Yeah. And oh, those yeah. were also two, two uh, those were also teams, those Bayern teams that were really comfortable playing any style, right? So he had a lot of flexibility, never really made much with that. Comes to Man City, we know what his budget is at Man City. They, <laughs> they're able to spend $100 million on a total bust like Jack yep. Grealish, and oh, they still you. have a ton of depth, unbelievable attacking players. And, oh, yeah, by the way, we're just going to add in Erling Holland, who's literally a robot striker. So it's like... <laughs> It's like he I feel like he never has to face any adversity. Whereas if you look at what Klopp accomplished at Dortmund, he won a couple league titles, which nobody does in the Bundesliga, got to the Champions League final um, Mm -hmm. with Dortmund and then ultimately comes to Liverpool. And we know what he's done, won a Premier League, one of the best seasons of all time, could have won many other Premier Leagues, but Man City had just that many more points. And won a Champions League, been to three finals. I think that's more impressive to do with the squad that he ha- he's had and the budget that he's had than it's been for Pep. Yeah, absolutely. I think so. Um, I mean, I, I like Liverpool, and they don't have big-name players, so they've never been known to have huge, you know, big, big-name players. They've, they've been known to trade off their big-name players and send them to other places, you know, like Suarez. Suarez going from Liverpool to Barcelona, you know. Now Torres before him, too, yep. yeah. Torres as well. Um, so they've, you know, they didn't have in the most recent years, they didn't have these stacked rosters. But uh no, I I I like what he does. And you know, I I watch his I watch his film and I watch uh, his teams play. And whenever I'm talking to my players about, you know, giving them examples about certain things that we want to do or we want to emulate on the field, um, I'm I'm always I'm always keen to finding different things that he does with his teams, you know, high pressure, like how does Liverpool high pressure in the final third and how do they recover the ball so well in the final third? And within two touches, it's a quick counter on their final third, on their attacking third, getting right into goal in the frame, you know, with Firmino. And obviously Sané, um, uh, Sadio Mane is now gone uh, and he was a big part of that. But um, it, just, it just translates. It just translates to the other players. And I think the only thing that's killing Liverpool right now, to be honest with you, it's not even the management, it's not his tactics. It's the turnover of players, you know, and I think that's happening to a lot of EPL teams where teams are just cons- consistently running through players because they might not see them as a fit or they're sending them here or they're sending them there. So there isn't that stability that you have where, 
you know, when you've had cons uh, consecutive winners of league titles or, you know, championship teams that run every year, every year, it's because they have a consistent roster who understands the system of play. So it's easier for the managers to make those changes and adjustments that they need, depending on who they're bringing in as a new player. But those changes are happening way too many times now that sometimes it's out of the manager's hands and, you know, the, the window, the transfer window is happening right now. And who knows who's going to end up wearing you know, who are the two or three players that are going to be showing up in my roster in the next couple of weeks? And then I have to insert them into a system of play. And how is that going to affect the locker room and everything else? So it's, yeah, it's, it's not an easy role, but I think, I think the best, the best coaches, whether professional or youth are the ones who know how to connect with their players and, and really, really show them that they care, um, by helping them develop and by helping them grow and just by maximizing uh, their abilities and their talents and helping them reach their goals. I think any level, that's probably what makes a good coach a good coach. De definitely. And I think you even see that with Pep Guardiola too. I don't want to sound too, too negative on Pep. He's obviously one of the best coaches in the history of the world. Um, you see that too. I think the players do love him. He's a unique yeah. personality. Like, I think if you listen to him in interviews, like sometimes you're wondering like what he's getting at. Um, but he, he, his players clearly love him. So yeah, cool. they do. Quick question before we jump into world cup stuff. Sure. Um, who do you want to take over the U.S. men's national team? Oh, man. I'll be honest with you. Um, I, 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 After seeing all this drama going on in the last couple of weeks, it, it is it is a little bit disheartening, but I'm hoping that they find the right fit. Um, they're talking about Jesse Marsh. Um, you know, maybe that maybe that could be a that could be a lead. Um, I know they talked about. Zidane was offered opportunities from Brazil and that would be crazy and, if it got Zidane that you think that could actually happen I don't think so I don't think so it's it for Zidane is about national pride and if he's not coaching the France national team he's not coaching any other national team I can tell I you that um he's not going to pull a Jurgen Klinsmann where you know even when we had Klinsmann here <laughs> coaching the United States we're all like oh yeah you know this big figure but there's so much more that goes into coaching the U.S. men's national team or being yep. involved at that level that uh, just being a just being a popular legendary figure is not going to do it. It's got it has to be somebody who comes in. I mean, uh, I know Martino uh, might be uh, an option. I think he's got uh, he's got enough history with the with yeah. the with the national teams. Mar they're talking about Martinez, um, Roberto Martinez. You know, is he going to Portugal? I thought they finalized that. Um, I, I haven't heard anything yet, but I mean, it could have happened in the last, in the last few days. Um, I haven't been too keen on listening to it. Uh, but, um, I mean, there's always guys who are out there like Joachim Lowe, who used to coach Germany, um, That'd be interesting. you know, who would come here and, um, maybe the, the United States just needs, they need someone from the outside of the U S who has deep rooted soccer value to bring it to the men's national team. I think the, the men's national team has a lot of talent. They have a lot of young talent. And after their performance, this world cup, they need a next level coach, a level, a coach that's going to just, you know, push them beyond that, that hurdle that's been keeping the men's national team in the round of 16. I think you're so right. They finally need a coach that's going to be able to elevate them. 
because yeah. yes, they do have a lot of talent and they have a lot of talent across the board. It's just, we're coming to the point now where those guys are going to be in their prime in the two, a lot of them are going to be in their prime in the 2026 world cup, which will be at the United in the United States. We can't blow that opportunity. Um, yeah. so. I mean, now, that's going to be huge. That's going to be huge. Uh, the Champs, I mean, I, who knows if the Champs is going to keep his job at France. I feel like he's got it, right? I mean, if, you, if you've done nothing but win, which I feel like he's done since he's gotten there, minus the 2018 Euro, let's take that out. It's literally 2016 Euro went to the final. Twenty eight. Yeah. I'm sorry, 2018 World Cup won. 2020 yeah. Euros, that's when they were knocked out <laughs> in the round of 16. Okay, it, it happens. Crazy right. game by Switzerland. I think Switzerland scored three bangers. Like, how? What right. can you really do sometimes, right? Like this year, they go to the final. And I don't think anybody expected that they were going to get to the final when you heard that Nkunku and Benzema and so many other guys were going to be out. They still made it there. I think he's he's probably earned the right to keep the job. But for the U.S. Well, team, I think you're pretty spot on though with your sentiments. Like, yeah. why not take somebody that's got an established reputation in Europe, somebody that totally understands what they need to do to instill that winning mentality in the players? Like, it it's going to be hard, though, to recruit that right person that can then also communicate to the American players and, like, have that respect, so. Yeah, the Ameri- – the, that's – I think you hit it on the head <clears throat> is um, the American players are like no other players in the world. Um you have such a diverse range of backgrounds, number one. Um, you have the inner city kids and you have the suburban kids and you have the Western uh, U.S. type of play and you have the Eastern Coast t- style of play. Uh, you have the Florida players, you have the California players and you have the Northeast players. So try it's, it's not like Croatia where you have this small Three country million people in the whole the same, yeah. you know it's not the same so you know what you're expecting it's you have you know 350 million people that you're looking at and you're saying let me get the best 25 guys here that are in so many different styles of play um and to try and bring it all together so i think that's going to be a huge task for whoever it is um you know i i'm in a lot of conversations about soccer and uh, if the U.S. does not get a good coach for this upcoming World Cup run uh, in 2026, um, it's going to be the same scenario. And maybe the round of 16 as a host. And that, maybe that, worse. Or maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe worse. The I mean, pressure this, could this get to World them Cup. because this is the like this is the moment for them. I feel like if we don't succeed in this upcoming World Cup, it's going to be really hard for the U- U.S. men's soccer to gain any legitimacy. Yeah, that's fair to say. I think so, because, you know, when you look at it from a player's perspective, you know, you go in like, say, for example, this past this past World Cup, you're yeah. going up against Iran, who, you know, is not known to be a soccer world power. And you you put up a performance like you do there where you're barely escaping a victory there. Ridiculous. You know, where you you're, on the coaching you're going team? England. Is that on the coaching you Is there is the way that they played on like. Oh. On the coaching to you, it was fr- it was frustrating. I'm like, well, why are you going into a defensive shell? You're up one zero. I couldn't. You, you, the, what you've been doing has been working fine, and you got to keep working for that second goal. And then in the 70th minute, you start to pull players, and then you put in all defensive players, and you park the bus for the next you know 25 minutes of the game. I mean, that's I mean, they, and they got some bullets. 
<laughs> England scored, and I know it's England, but like they scored six goals against Iran. Like so, yeah. it's like take it to these guys. I couldn't understand it at all. I it's so passive, but I feel like that's Ben Ber- Berhalter. Like that's been his style. He wants yeah. to manage the game, win. You know, like. I totally disagree with it. It could have gone south really quickly too, but. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, so, I mean, you look at the performance that they put up this year with the talent that they had. Uh, now, mind you that there were some choices and personnel that, you know, a lot of people can debate about, you know, this player should have gone or that player shouldn't have gone. And why is this player playing in this position? And this player's never played in this position. This player only played MLS. Why is he even on the field? Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. So you know you can debate all those all you want, but at the end of the day, I think the tactics have a lot to do with how the team performs and the physical preparation. I think one of the biggest things was that I saw was some of the key players for the U.S. national team were coming out in the 70th minute of the game. They looked, you know, and they looked so tired, and they, they couldn't last more than 70 minutes. And I, and I thought that was. Um, you know, that was really, really um, frustrating because they were the best players. Um, who was their central midfielder there? Number eight. I forget his name. McKinney? Um, yeah, McKenny. Great player. Plays for you. And, you know, but he only lasts 70 minutes, 65 minutes. Dude, he has the same problem. I'm worried if this is a McKenny problem. And I see what you're saying, too. This was definitely a U.S. men's national team issue, big picture as well. I worry for McKenney that it's a McKenney issue because he has had the same issues at Juve. You see him in for like periods of the game. He's hustling. He's working hard to win the ball back. And then like late in the game, you notice that he's kind of going through the motions and yeah, we'll see what happens with that. But big picture, I agree with you. What was with the fitness levels at the world cup? and Why couldn't yeah. our best players sustain the 90? Like, our best performance was tying England nil-nil. And England played embarrassing. Like, yeah. they, you talk about, like, playing a really passive style. Like, they didn't do anything against us, which is totally embarrassing for them. Yeah. Um, but And we're, we're known to be one of the biggest nations that has the most resources to be able to develop our athletes. Um, but right. yet our players can't play a game more than 70 minutes without being being subbed out or being totally uh, dead in the field. And then you look at guys like Croatia. Croatia has played the most minutes in a World Cup for the last two World Cups. Because two World, I was going to say, not even just this one, yeah. The two, the last two World Cups, they've played just about every elimination game into overtime and PKs. And exactly. guys like Luka Modric, Perisic. Dude, I saw Perisic. I knew that Croatia was winning that game, uh, the, the second game when they beat France. No, I'm sorry, when they beat – um, who did they Brazil. beat? When they beat – sorry, when they beat Brazil, is it was in the 88th minute. I remember it clearly. Uh, a ball goes out the flank, out the left side. And in the 88th minute, I saw – Ivan Perisic make a beeline sprint from box to box to recover, to become the second defender on that ball. And he won that ball. He turned it around and then they went on the attack in the 88th minute. That's after having played, you know, an overtime game the round before against Japan, I believe it was. I I Uh, love that your shout out is on Perisic because anybody that knows me, I'm always talking about this guy. If you understand like, 
the the small things in soccer, you know that Perisic, like something you just talked about right now, is actually one of the best players in the world. Like he <laughs> does all those hustle things. He's a super direct player. Like he's not gonna like kill you one v one. Like he can win some of those battles, but like he's more direct. Like his crossing, his money. He's good with both feet. Yeah. He's always in the right position. He's always hustling and bringing so much energy to those positions. And like he's he's by position a fullback um, or a wingback, but he can play even in the forward positions for yeah. Croatia because they were lacking in those areas. They didn't really have anybody in there. So he just kind of deputized in those roles and still played well just because he's always yeah. hustling and doing the little things. So he's, a, <laughs> he's an awesome player. In big picture, Croatians are just built different. Like yeah, I, I'm, it's just I'm the, just... their mentality, their physicality, man. It's like Serbians, the Serbians and the Croatians, man. You never want to play a physical game against those teams because they will come out on top, you know. Um, but yeah, so stuff like that, you know, when you look at the differences of where we are as a as a country in the U.S., there's some things that they definitely need to improve on. Uh, but I think the person, the key, the key element to the success in 2026 is going to be to putting the right manager in the right place. And I'm sorry to say this, you know, uh, for anybody who's U.S. born, I don't think a U.S. born coach uh, is going to be the answer to, you know, we, we've tried it. We tried it with Michael Bradley. We tried it with Berhalter. You know, it, it just doesn't work. It, it, they don't they don't have that edge. They don't have that edge. I would have disagreed with you maybe a few months ago because I do like Jesse Marsh a lot. I don't know how many American coaches have been put in the positions that Jesse Marsh has been put into. Like mm -hmm. he's coaching at Leeds. I mean, right. it's not the biggest deal in the world, but it's still the biggest league in the world. And he, they've mm -hmm. had some great wins, man. Like Newcastle yeah. was cooking all year and they drew Newcastle nil nil. They don't even, they don't have a good defense at all. Like they beat Chelsea early in the year. They've had some pretty nice signature uh, wins. <laughs> yeah, I've liked a lot of the things he's doing, but I, I ultimately, I agree with you too. We need to bring in someone to change the mentality, someone who can help the players like, see things a little bit differently and then instill the right uh changes that we need from like a organizational standpoint too like some of the things we were just talking about like there needs to be kind of sweeping change in uh, the structure of the u.s men's national team so you're yeah. probably right like do, bringing in another american to do that might not make a lot of sense no what, i think you need a clean perspective what did you think of the world cup were you you were obviously happy Oh man, I was ecstatic. I, you know, I, I was up at the 5 a.m. games every day when there were 5 a.m. games because I'm on the East Coast. Um, and I watched every game possible that I could. I recorded games. Uh, I watched them when I came home from work. Um, I thought it was, I thought it was a great tournament. You know, I was, I was really upset when Argentina lost to um Saudi Arabia I will I will tell you that and and I had all sorts of conspiracy theories in my head because that's how us Latinos are we, <laughs> we were like why who got paid off and you know why is Argentina losing to Saudi Arabia this and that um but talent wise this this was a great World Cup to watch because it, you, you weren't just talking about one player I mean yeah Mbappe was kind of like the figure that everybody was talking about, Messi and Mbappe, Messi and Mbappe, right? These are the two icons that we wanted to see. It's the passing of the torch, as many people were saying. It's like, it's Mbappe's time, Messi's done, that kind of thing. But, um, you know, seeing the last games for, like, Luka Modric, like, you know, legend, watching him still seven years but, old and he did that still? Like, you know, yeah. Just, it's a ridiculous levels, like, 
if you remember too, all those great midfielders that are on his level, like the Iniestas, the Javis, the Pirlos, they were all long gone by the time yeah. they were 34 years old, you know? Like, oh, yeah. He's 37 years old, and he still looks as good as I've ever seen him. And he was, he was one of the top five midfielders in the tournament. Easily. Oh, he's uh, easily. I, yeah. I think he's, I don't know what your opinion is, but if you look at like what in your mind a midfielder is supposed to do, I feel like he does literally everything at, at a world-class level. And to me, he's one of the top, at least top 10 midfielders of all time. Yeah, easily. I mean, he, when I, I was watching him play in so many of the games and I see Luka Modric behind his two center backs receiving the ball behind the two center backs and just coming up and distributing from there and the next play you'll see him out on the top of the 18 just you know one twos with everybody else on the top of the box trying That's to get the the he's there. box to box doing yeah. everything at 37 years old like it's mm-hmm. it's a joke what were your other yeah, no. what were your other main takeaways from this world cup um outside of you you said it like we talked about Messi and Mbappe and you know it was incredible to see I don't think it gets any cooler than the fact that we were in the World Cup final a game of that quality and you had two of the greatest players of all time like literally a game that we're going to be able to tell people about forever um but outside of like the main stories what were what were some of the little takeaways that you had uh coming out of this tournament um well, number one, the VAR needs some work. <laughs> yeah, you think? Uh, this, you Why know, can't the, we get that right? I, I don't know. The VAR definitely still, it's a work in progress. But I mean, I think it's helped. It's helped um, restore some sort of uh, fair play to soccer and, you know, get the, you know, help the officials get the calls right. Um, but I, I like the fact that Morocco made it to the semifinal Unreal. again. You know, um, I think it was in uh, it was in Korea, Japan, that Morocco made it to the semifinal. And there was another team that was uh, from Asia. I think it was Korea. South Korea made it to the uh, to the semifinal. So you didn't have like your your giants from Europe or you didn't have your giants from South America again, you know, in the final four. But you have you know, you have these small country teams that are so well prepared and playing. It's so great, Um, you know. Um, I think, I think we, the, you know, without getting too much into it, I think the, the political and the social political and all those other things that were lingering in the background of the actual tournament, I think, you know, that kind of took away a little bit from the excitement. I think so big time. And, and, and the, and the passion, you know, you're talking about human rights violations and, you know, people dying to make a world cup happen and things like that. And to me that that's, it's. It was tough to take because, you know, you always want to see the game as a pure event that brings a lot of positivity and just brings the world together. But then, you know, you know that these things are happening on the back end. So that was pretty tough. Something that I'm hoping that, you know, in the next World Cup and it's not going to be an issue because, you know, we're so vigilant about things like that here on this side of the world that um, it'll probably be a better event if you want to put it that way. I couldn't agree with you more. I was so disappointed that this ended up happening. I think in my mind, I almost believed this would not end up happening. I hated the fact that they interrupted the club season in general, Mm -hmm. right? Like a World Cup in December really doesn't have the same feel to it. But you know what? If you're going to do it, put it in a country where we can at least celebrate the, you know, the soccer values of that country, the soccer culture in that country, and then also let it be a place that 
this is what the World Cup is for, where everybody can come together and celebrate this game in the way that we always do every four years. It was just right. really disappointing. I it totally, if you, if you see the, like, I'm sure you did see the videos of the, uh, some of the, like fan stations that they had set up, like some of the camps that they had set up, like they literally yeah, just took like, it was sad. It was, it yeah. wasn't a really good experience being there. And I think that you could kind of feel that in the stadiums in some mm-hmm. cases, in some of the games. And that's a shame because the best part about the World Cup is the atmosphere, the celebrating of the cultures. We yeah. lost that in this World Cup. But like you said, what made up for it was that the play was actually re- either really high quality or really exciting. So, yeah, I'll yeah. take it, to be honest. And I think this is, this is probably the World Cup where the most goals have been scored. Uh, was that in actually? The World Cup. I believe so. Um, if my, if I wouldn't my be surprised. Um. Most World Cup goal scores, uh, it's been, you know, I think it's been a while and it surpassed 2018. Um, and I think that that's that's one of the facts that I had that I had read somewhere. I wouldn't um, be surprised. I mean, for the amount of extra time that they gave us in total. In this oh, my World God. It better have been the most. I think, you know what? I I'm, I'm all, I've been a soccer guy for a long time and um. I don't want to call it extra time because extra time is when you go into overtime, but uh, injury time when you're adding stoppage time, excuse me, the stoppage time podcast, you know? Yeah. It's, it's, you know, eight to eight, nine minutes in some cases. And, and all this because of the time wasting that goes on in the game. That is the, that is the one thing that I despise the most about the game today is the time wasting. And I know it's, it's tactical. I know it's part of the game. You know, I'll go a little slower, kind of slow the game down, change the pace or whatever. But when you're when you're stopping play for two and a half minutes because a guy went down on a could have been tackle and the guy's screaming murder on the field and, and he's got to get carried out or this and that. And you're wasting two and a half. Like at that point, if the guy stands up and he goes back on the field, as soon as the play is over, give him a yellow card. Like yeah, stop with that. I agree. Don't don't keep don't keep adding on the extra, you know, eight, nine, ten minutes because that that's game changing. Oh, like, absolutely. That's hugely game changing. And the 90 minutes, you know, teams prepare to play 90 minutes and your game faces happen in 90 minutes. And if you're adding 10 more minutes to this now, it's a whole different dynamic of the game where you're trying to make up time for the 55th minute now in the 90 90th minute. It's it's huge difference. So I think a lot more yellow cards and suspensions should be faced. I mean, we've even had outlandish discussions as such as, hey, you know what? If you if you take a dive and you're down and you wasted two minutes of time, you know, you're gonna sit out for two minutes and your team's gonna have to play short for two minutes. And that then would you can be come. great. That would be a great uh penalty. Honestly, that would be a great foul to get. Yeah, you see it out. every game. You see, yeah. you see instances of that almost every game. People would stop doing it, or at least would think about it a little bit more. That that's yeah. a good idea. Like, I love you, that idea. I've never heard that before. Yeah, like um, a penalty you, box in hockey. Yeah, just you go, you you dove, you wasted two minutes. Instead of putting it in at the end, your team gets to play down for two minutes. That's it. And I love that. see what happens. <laughs> see um, what happens before we. To close this out, yes, sir. Want to, you know, uh, going back to the big theme of this World Cup, Lionel Messi, legacy defining World Cup. To me, and and I said this in one of my previous episodes, like 
obviously some of the moments he had in the World Cup were special. Particularly, he had a few amazing assists. He had a few great goals early in the tournament. And just more importantly than just those little flashes, just like the way the guy plays is just unbelievable, right? Like his overall impact on the team's attack. But Mm -hmm. I, you know, to me, I don't think this made him the best player. I think he already was. Why did you think that this tournament was what finally, you know, pushed it over the edge to make him the greatest player of all time? So, you know, uh, to me, Maradona was always the best player of all time. And I, I think you and I had some conversation before about, um, you know, what would happen if Messi won the World Cup? Well, I said, you know, well, I think at that point, Messi would probably become the greatest of all time in my eyes. I love Maradona. Um, but looking at it career wise, I mean, Messi's career has been going on for what? Almost 20 years. Yeah. I was going to say right? start his career really got started in what? 2004. Yeah. Yeah. So we're almost at 20 years of his career. Um, and wherever he's gone, he's made an impact wherever he's gone. He's won. He's played in some fantastic teams. Right for Barcelona and club, he had a really, really good lineup of teammates that made him really successful. But towards the towards his last days of Barcelona, he didn't have the great teams, and they still won because of him. The Argentinian national team, um, you know, the, you have the fourteen World Cup final that I still say that if Di Maria was playing in that World Cup final, I the, uh, Argentina wins that World Cup. Of course, he's uh, a big game player, man. He's right. But Messi, again, the, the theme here is the, the teams that he's been on consistently over the last 15 years have won. And he's won with those teams. And he's been the game changer. He's been the guy who has been, you know, the known factor that's going to make a difference in a game. Um, this World Cup for him, it was the only thing that he didn't have. Is the only prize that any soccer player wants to achieve. World Cup champion. Right. So now you put everything that he's done through club and international as well with Argentina, Copa America, Libertadores, area. And, you know, you can put in anything you want on it, but you put everything else that he's done in his career. And now you just put the World Cup in it. Best player of all time. Yeah. I mean, I think he always was the most talented that I ever watched, at least. I think it would be cute to say anybody else is better. Like maybe early, like growing up when I was like, with my grandfather following along watching the TV, I thought Zidane was like a wizard, you know, like, mm-hmm. and Ronaldinho, same deal. Even when like late, when I remember watching him um, with AC Milan, when he came, people were like, nah, he's washed. And he was not washed at all. But no, like maybe I think his Ronaldinho's only issue ever was lack of motivation. He was just too good. He didn't feel like he needed to train that hard. Which, yeah. to be fair, he was kind of right in some respects. But <laughs> imagine if a player like that had the training mentality of a, you know, Cristiano Ronaldo, he would have been hands Oof. down the greatest player of all time, and it wouldn't even be easily here. But and I, th- I think Messi can still come back and play in the next World Cup. To be honest with you, well, the I way mean, he's playing, he looked unbelievable at this World Cup. Like people were saying that he was like losing, um, he was like losing losing a step as far as like being able to take guys on that's t- complete crap like that is complete crap i mean you, you look at guys like um like valderrama when he played for colombia valderrama wasn't the fastest guy el pibe valderrama but that guy could drop the ball on a dime at any spot 
and he knew how to move the game. Like Messi at his Messi is at his age where if you want to put it into context, he's just like Jordan, right? Jordan in his first bunch of years of his career, he was all about the dunks. He was all about driving the lane. Power game, yeah. The power game. And then as he got older, you know, he became a jump shooter and a jump shot shooter and a, and a three-point shooter. And he was shooting from the perimeter. That's Messi. Messi is Messi's not looking to take on two, three guys like he did, you know, years back. Now he's just such, so masterful and he's so good with his skills individually, one v one, that he doesn't need to go far to be able to put the ball into other people's feet like right. he did in the assist against Holland. I mean, that was unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, it's it's unreal. Like the guys from another planet. How do you even see that happening from the angle that he was, the way he was facing, the way that the defenders were blocking his view? And how did he know that slipping that ball there was good? I mean, that's incredible. His vision on that was absolutely incredible. Like he's, he's to me beside, I think him and Andrea Pirlo, the best passers I've ever seen. And think about it. Like that was Pirlo's game. Messi Messi can do everything. And I think like you, you mentioned it too. Like he's just playing like how he's changed the way he plays. Like he's just playing a deeper role because he knows he has to be the facilitator. And and Di Maria was so important in that final, like, Ultimately, you do still need at least one guy to take take guys on in the penalty area, and yeah. that's Di Maria's specialty. Even at this age, he can still do that. Like, trust me, he plays for Juventus, so I know frustrating oh, yeah. frustrating player at times because he gets injured at this age a lot, and yeah. he wants to take care of his body. I totally respect that, but when he's healthy and he's going for it in in a one up situation, like really want to have him on the team like yeah player no yeah absolutely but yeah you know so guys like Messi um I think he he has an opportunity to come back for another world cup um does Cristiano Ronaldo have a chance maybe you know unfortunately the politics for him on his side of the world don't work as well as they do for Messi in Argentina so who knows but um you know it's it's a it's a different game. It's it's a different game. And the biggest, you know, again, the biggest takeaways from, from this World Cup is that the new talent that's out here is incredible. Like yeah. some of these younger guys, you know, like if you look at the Spain roster, some of these guys that are playing in the Spain in the Spain roster and the in the England roster, uh, the the reason why I feel that the Shams is so successful is because he has a stable of horses and he could have, he could, you know, he could have had Benzema Hurt, but he also had, you sure. know. He had Giroud, he had uh, Mbappe, he had Dembele. He, I mean, I mean, the guy could have just looked in his bench and he could have pulled two top strikers and put him in the game with no problem. Fair enough. Um, you know, Germany, Germany is a little bit of a conundrum because I know they're on a down cycle. They're, you know, Belgium is the Belgium golden generation's done. I think this was it for them. I don't think yeah. oh, yeah. Belgium. Um, when your best player says you can't, the team can't win, that's a horrible sign. I, yeah. I, that's pretty but, bad on him too. Now, I mean, yeah, no, I I thought he he could have handled it better. He, you know, and a lot of people are like, oh, well, you know, he's being sarcastic and he's using that as fuel to, to feel teammates. It's like, no, no, dude, he was being realistic and he knew. But you know, there's different ways to handle that, especially at that international level. Yeah. Um, but I liked seeing Japan. I mean, I loved watching Japan play. Okay, uh, Gonda, the goalie for for Japan, was phenomenal. I mean, the guy just. He kept those guys in games. So watching the Asian teams and watching the African teams just start to like be big game teams in the World Cup, 
was a huge takeaway because it shows you the diversity and and how the the game is growing beyond the borders of Europe and South America, and it's given a chance to other teams to get in there. And I think oh, it was a Canada now. Does Canada now hold the uh, the fastest goal ever scored in the World Cup? I think so. They didn't do bad. <laughs> I didn't expect them to get out of that group with Belgium and Croatia, but that was they did pretty well. Yeah, no, it was it was you know. So you you seen all these new teams coming up, and I I don't know. I I think it's I think it was a fun World Cup. Too many other background issues taken away from the value of it. Uh, but for the value for me, our, the Argentina won. That's, I mean, I was crying. I, I'll be honest with you. I was crying when Argentina won. Oh, that's I, awesome. was crying, I was crying when Argentina lost in 2014 also, just with a different feeling. Um, but uh, I'm looking forward to the next World Cup. Um, I've, I've already talked to some of my friends and we're going to get on the road and, you know, get a Winnebago and, you know, hit hit games on the East Coast. And if we have the availability to get ourselves some tickets for the World Cup final, that's where I'm going to be. <laughs> I'm going to try and do the same thing. I'm, I've already talked about it with my friends too. Like we're going to, there's going to be games in Boston, which is well in Foxborough, which is going to be so exciting, but I want to also travel and see games, maybe not even just on the East coast. There's going to be some great options. So that'll yeah, be go, I'm going to, I'm going to Gillette. If I can go to the Meadowlands, if I can go to Philly, Atlanta, I'm not sure I'll go to Miami too hot in the summer. Yeah, a little hot. Yeah, I, no, I yeah. wouldn't, I wouldn't last there. Um, um go so ahead. Or go, go ahead sorry no no just you you do you have do you have your all-time 11 to close I it do. out i do i i do i let's about say it. ours and then i'm gonna have you i would love to have you on again if you'd come on the show again and then we could talk about this too because i'd love to hear people's thoughts on our on our 11s and we can just kind of wrap the show that way does that work for you that sounds perfect. Yeah, go ahead. Why don't you give us your first? Sure. So for mine, I'm going with Gigi Buffon in goal, you know, 20, 20, 25 years. Still playing, actually, which is crazy. Um, one of the greatest goalkeepers of all time, at the very least. I have him as my GOAT. Cafu is my right back, two World Cups. Absolute yeah. monster. Just as good defensively as he was attacking. Awesome player. Franz Beckenbauer, pretty much revolutionized um, how to be a center back, playing that sweeper role. Um, yep. Paolo Baldini, I have him as a left center back just mm-hmm. because he could have played, he could, I could have him at left back too, but I wanted to put this other guy in at left back. Paolo Maldini's one of the, for me, top two. I think he's yeah. it's either him or Beckenbauer. You could pick as your goat. Shout to shout out to Franco Baresi. You could also put him in there. If you watch him, that's not a normal defender. Like mm-hmm. watch highlights of that guy. He was a menace, but I've got Cafu, Beckenbauer, Maldini, and then I have to put Roberto Carlos, um, best attacking left back of all time. Yeah. Um, can I give you my can I give you my back line now? Let's go, go for it. Yeah, let's do it line. that way. So for my goalie for my all-time, uh Jose Luis Chilavert from oh, Paraguay. Oh, yeah. I mean, one of the most athletic, I mean, the guy covered corner to corner, post to post. I mean, the, the guy was a beast. The only reason why he didn't have as much success as he should have. Uh, was because he didn't have a, a big team in front of him. But as a goalkeeper, to me, Jose Luis Chilavert was probably the best of all time. Love that um, I, I'm with you with Cafu, man. I, I, you know, Cafu was just a beast coming up and down the line. Um, for my two center backs, I have 
Beckenbauer like you do, but I did put Franco Baresi as my my uh, my center back there because that guy was just a beast. I mean, he revolutionized how to play a physical center back. I mean, you you cannot get by the guy, and he was a wall. He was a wall, and I, and then I put Maldini actually at my left back because when he played at Milan, he was one of the best left backs of all time at at Milan, and even for the national team when he was you know in between positions there. So uh, that's where I'm at with my back line. Where are you with the mids? I love I love that. Um, for me, and I didn't do this on as much like balance. Like I probably would have picked different players if we were actually setting a lineup, um, but I wanted to put what I thought were the best players in their mm-hmm. position. So midfield defensive midfielder, Frank Breitkart, I think is the best of all time. I think three different champions league titles, um, one with Ajax, one with, or two with AC Milan. If you watch highlights of him, he was just destroying guys out there mm-hmm. and a big underrated piece of those all time. Great eighties uh, Milan teams. I put Zidane in there. This is like where I would probably maybe have put either like a, for balance if, if it was a real lineup, like I said, like a Mateus or Pirlo, they probably would have worked better together in a double pivot with Rijkaard. Um, mm-hmm. But you have to put Zidane, I think, in your all-time 11. Um, kind of just goes without saying. The accomplishments go without saying. And then for me, I put Diego Maradona in as a 10. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, so for my six, I put in Claude Makalele. To me, it was that. for me. What to me, that guy. I mean, he revolutionized how to play the six. Mascherano took play. He Mascherano emulated how Makalele played. Uh, Torre played how Makalele played. You know, I think he was a beast okay, overall. Um, I had Maradona and and Zidane playing in the middle of the field as well. I thought those guys. Um, Maybe the the only other change that I the only other guy that I would have considered for that midfield would have been Mascherano, which to me he was he was a horse for the fifteen years that he was playing professional in big time soccer. Definitely I mean, an he, underrated player. Yeah, he moved he moved teams. So, what do you got for your front? Yeah, I mean, I'm not going complicated. I think this is a simple one: Messi on the right, Cristiano mm-hmm. on the other side, and then. Uh, even though he wasn't a striker, I'm going to put him in as number nine Pele, who could have played, yeah. who obviously could have played as a striker. If I had to put a striker in there, based on highlights, accomplishments, and and from what I I've heard, um, from a consistency standpoint, it's been either Van Basten or R nine, Ronaldo, Marco Ronaldo nine, yeah. yeah, or Ronaldo Nazario. All right, man, that's that's a good that's so I have Messi playing on the wing, I have Ronaldinho playing on the other side, uh, and then playing the nine, I do have R9 playing with a caveat that a very close Thierry Henry could have been Oof. that number nine right there. I mean, Thierry Henry to me, unreal, you know, top five strikers of all time, easily consistency uh through his years in arsenal barcelona i mean he he did everything the same way every time he stepped on the field and he was a menace and if you've ever watched hit the pace that thierry Henry had ridiculous you couldn't it was just like ronaldinho you couldn't stop him that video of him in the last minute of the game when they played i think it was either a semi-final or quarterfinal arsenal they played at the bernabeo and he's just sprinting with the ball mm-hmm. down to the down the line like 
it's a great video to watch. Like, oh, yeah. I don't know many other guys were capable of that kind of power and pace dribbling. You watch him. Yeah, he was a powerful dribbler, but yes. he also had, he's a great passer too. Really complete forward, obviously. I think he has mm-hmm. the, does he not have the record for like, I know he, he had most goals for a while or at least close to Shearer, but goal contributions, he's definitely up there. Because I know one season he had like 32 goals and 25 assists in all competitions, which is like such a joke. Like that's stuff you can do in like a FIFA career mode or something. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Well, I mean, the guy, the guy scored almost 200 goals, you know, almost a hundred assists. The the guy was, he was, he was a menace, but R9, Henri, you could have gone either way for those. But to me, Ronaldinho and Messi, the two deadliest wingers you could ever put in on a soccer field. Talent wise. There's just no question about it. Honestly. Yeah. All right, Edgar, this was a ton of fun, as as expected. Thank you so much for coming on, man. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Matt. It's always a pleasure, man. And, uh, you know, let's uh, let's definitely try and get together for some other conversations because I always enjoy doing this. And it's it's a lot of fun just bouncing ideas and different perspectives. And like I said at the beginning, I enjoy having conversations with people who know what they're talking about. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. And um, love you, man. Thanks so much. Thanks, Maddie. Have a good night. All right.